Uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. If you've not uh, opened there yet, go ahead and do that. The children in the room, I'm going to invite you to go and be discipled by God's servants as uh, they go get taught the word. And um, as they go out, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we open up the Bible. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of who you are. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Christ and through the word, even in creation. And God, I pray that in this hour, Father, that we would learn what it is to give and to receive, that we might glory in you. Help us now towards that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I wonder if you've ever thought about this question. Have you ever wondered why we go to the trouble of wedding ceremonies? Uh, Why do we go to all the trouble of wedding ceremonies? We could, if we wanted to, right? We could just do a contract of sorts, come up with some agreements, sign the papers off, move on to the party and life together, right? You could just do it that way. So why all the trouble of wedding ceremonies? Well, the reason why Christians do wedding ceremonies is because they recognize that uh, a wedding, or in particular a marriage, is not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a covenant. Now, covenant is initiated by God, agreed to by man. And so the ceremony is the making of a covenant. But I wonder if you've ever taken the time to actually listen to what happens in the making of a covenant at a wedding ceremony. See, with all the emotion, with all the beauty, with all the music, uh, with all these kinds of things happening, it's easy to just watch a wedding ceremony, but not actually listen to a wedding ceremony. And so, without all of those trappings of the wedding ceremony, I wanna, want you guys to take a listen to what is promising to be done in a wedding ceremony. So, now that we're not in one, listen to what's being promised. These are the vows that I will use at a service. I'll use it this coming Saturday. Uh, this is what a husband will say. He says, I covenant with you before. And by the way, if I've married, officiated your wedding. So this is a good reminder for those of you. Even if it's not, it'd be good for you to be reminded of these things. Husband says, I covenant with you before God and these witnesses. I will lead you in an intimate spiritual fellowship, a deep and abiding friendship, an ever-increasing intimacy with Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. I will love you as Christ loves his bride, the church. I will lead our home and protect you, provide for you. I will keep myself for you and you alone in sickness and in health in poverty and in wealth through whatever God brings to us with the full assurance that I will never leave you as long as he grants us life. I pledge my love to you. So before God and these witnesses, the witnesses in that ceremony, these are the things that the husband promises to give to the wife. And then likewise, as he's promising to give those to the wife, she is then what? Receiving those promises, right? She's receiving those. So there's this promise that goes to them, these promise, and then there's this receiving. But, of course, it doesn't stop there. The wife-to-be goes on to speak too, doesn't she? And she says this. She says, I covenant with you before God and these witnesses to live my life in loving fellowship and friendship, to love you and respect you, to be your loving companion and friend, to keep myself for you and you alone in sickness and in health in poverty and in wealth through whatever God brings to us with the full assurance that I will never leave you as long as he grants us life. Now, are these big or small promises? Big, right? Like really big promises. 
Very, very big promises. But did you notice that in the formation of a marriage, that the basic ingredients were promises to sacrificially give and receive? The formation, the wedding of two into one was that the core of it was this sacrificial giving and receiving. Well, the reason why Christians do vows like that and a wedding ceremony is because God has taught us that this is what makes any loving, meaningful relationship flourish. Giving and receiving. Sacrificial giving and receiving. So when marriages go bad, you can be sure that one of those ingredients is not functional. And likewise, when a marriage is going well, you can be assured that those ingredients are very operational. And so this is exactly what we're going to see from our passage this morning. That giving and receiving are necessary for the working together that God would receive the glory. That's what we're going to find in the passage this morning. Just as marriage is a covenantal partnership of giving and receiving, so is the Christian life as a whole. It's made up of giving and receiving to both God and His church in sacrificial ways. And when this happens, well, oneness happens, unity happens, it's beautiful. And when it doesn't happen, there's disunity and it's not pretty. Right? So guiding statement for us today. Here it is. Guiding statement for us today. Giving and receiving is the goal to glorying in God. Giving and receiving is the goal to glorying in God. Now, this passage, here's how we're going to tackle this passage. This passage, as you can see here, chapter 4, verse 14, down to uh, verse 20. You'll note there that it doesn't really lend itself to nice, clear division statements and nice, tight little three-point sermons that make it easy for us to follow. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you all the ways at the beginning of all the parties, how they're giving and receiving. I'm going to show you that. Then from there, we're going to begin to think about what that means for the Christian faith. And then we'll draw a few applications at the end. All right? That's how we're going to go about this. So we're going to go about this. So we close here. We're coming to the close of the letter. We'll have one more sermon next week. Well, coming to the close of the letter, you're going to notice that Paul is going to finish the letter much the same way he began the letter. So I'm going to read. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, and then I'm going to go back and read chapter 4, uh, verses 14 to 20. I want you to notice the similarities of partnering together for the giving and receiving to the glory of God. Here we go. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Here it comes. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers, we could say partners, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now listen to chapter 4, verse 14 to 20. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know That in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me 
in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. And I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So again, giving and receiving is the goal for glorying in God. So as Paul closes this letter, this little letter to the church there in Philippi, he wants to leave them with a meditation uh, of their past obedience so as to encourage them in future obedience. That's what he's doing. This church loves Paul. Paul loves this church. Paul, along with others, planted or started this church. And this church was a key component. The church at Philippi, key component to the spread of the gospel. Uh, as we've kind of already looked at. So he's fanning the flame here of making joy complete by reminding them of all the ways that they gave and received in hopes that they would continue to do so to the glory of God and not be sidetracked by some lesser joy, more individualistic interests. So take a look at that phrase there in verse 15. Partnership with me in giving and receiving. That's the governing idea through this passage here to 14 to 20. And the word partnership is a word that we've seen a good bit throughout this letter, haven't we? We've seen this a number of times, six times to be exact. Uh, It means fellowship, fellowship. It's one of those Greek words that English speakers recognize, koinonia. That's the word there. So if the glorying that Paul is driving towards in verse 20 and the glory that he's been talking about throughout this letter, if that's going to happen, then this church, and I think not even just that church, all churches All churches have to be thinking of others as better than themselves, partnering together in giving and receiving to the glory of God. That's how glory is going to come. And so I see three parties here that are giving and receiving in this passage. Three of them. See if you can identify them. I see in there Paul, the church, and God himself. Three sort of parties that are all giving and receiving. Let me show you those. First off, take a look at Paul. Paul's the one writing this letter. Paul gave this letter. It's one way he gave. And of course, we know that he gave this community the gospel since he shared the gospel. And this is how the church came into being. But Paul is also doing a lot of receiving here in this passage. We can see verse 14. He receives the kindness of this church in his trouble. He has historically received from this church, both when he was working in Thessalonica. That's verse 16. And of course, now as Epaphroditus has carried their gifts to him. That's verse 18. Gifts that Paul says make him well supplied and are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so Paul saw through maybe the pomegranates that Epaphroditus brought back from you know, Greece or whatever it was he brought. He saw through those, Paul did, he saw through those and saw something bigger. He saw them as conjuring up fragrant offerings to God. He seems to be pulling off of the imagery of Old Testament priests making sacrifices. And so that's how he received their gifts. So when churches, you should know this, when churches support the work of the gospel, they not only send material goods to the workers, they make pleasant sacrifices to God. But then notice how the church both gave and received. First off, they gave Paul, one of their own servants, an Epaphroditus, uh, to encourage Paul uh, while he was there in prison writing this letter. 
And as we just mentioned, they supplied or gave to his needs by offering Paul whatever it was he needed. We're not sure exactly what that is, but they gave him something. And then notice the thing that the, he, that the church receives. You may not have caught that. The first thing that the church received uh, would be something that maybe would cast our notice as something as being received that's good. But in verse 14, we find that the church received the fellowship of Paul's trouble. See that? So this is a gift because we know that suffering for the work of the gospel is said to be a blessing. That's what Jesus said himself. But we also find that Paul hopes that they receive the fruit. Uh, The church receives the fruit that increases to their credit as a result of their gift. And in verse 19, we see that they will receive the supply of all their needs according to the riches of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, finally, take a look at we see God here. We can see how God gave and received in this passage. First off, we know that God gave his son, right? He gave his son. Had he not done that, this church would not exist, nor would the occasion of this letter or the promises to them. But God also gave this church to Paul. He gave a church to Paul. So the church was the hands and feet of God's mercy to them. Uh, In their partnership with Paul was that mercy of God to them. But God was also going to give the spiritual fruit to the church as they supplied his needs. That's the promise there, verse 19. And then once again, we see that God would give or supply the needs of the Philippians according to his riches in glory. But God also receives in this passage. I don't know if you noticed that. He receives, remember the fragrant offerings of the Philippian church, verse 18. And of course, verse 20, God the Father receives glory forever and ever. So there it is. There's all the giving and receiving between the three parties. So when Paul says there in verse 15 that no church entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving, he's describing what he means by partnership. He's illustrating that in this passage. Partnership is giving and receiving. And if glory is going to happen, then we as Christians must also joyfully partner in the gospel by giving and receiving as well. And if we don't do that, If we don't give and receive, then we won't glory in God. And if we don't glory in God, we won't see God. So here's a question for you. Here's a question. Have you ever thought of the Christian faith as a partnership of giving and receiving to the glory of God? You ever thought about the Christian faith in that way? Have you ever thought about it like you might maybe think about a marriage? Sacrificial giving and receiving for the greater good of another. A fellowship with God and His people where we're regularly giving and receiving with the singular mission of glorying in God forever and ever. Have you ever thought about the Christian faith in that way? Is that the way you would describe what it's about? See, I think there's a temptation in Christian circles to try and lower the bar of the Christian faith so as to miss the fuller intention of what it means to be a Christian. See, I think what can be done, there's a temptation of what it can be done so as to get more partners in the Christian faith, to get more believers in the gospel, what we do is we lower it and we say, you just need to receive. Just receive. Just believe Jesus. And just receive heaven. Receive his gift. Because if you'll do that, then you get heaven forever. And that, of course, is not wrong. It's just not complete. It's a truncated gospel. Just receiving. See, to receive heaven, you have to give up your whole life. And by that I mean you have to give up your will of living for your own glory and agreeing to live for the glory of God and the good of His people. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not only receiving, it's giving. So only when you do that will you experience the glory of God, the salvation of your soul, and the everlasting freedom that is found in the infinite grace of Christ. So in order to receive Christ, you have to give up your whole life. And only then can you know what it means to be in partnership or fellowship with God. That's what Paul is illustrating here. That giving and receiving is the goal of glorying in God. See, what he's doing, what Paul is doing, the author of this letter is doing, is he's using the occasion of the Philippian church's gift in order to remind them or to illustrate for them the larger point of their needing to give to God and to one another and not only receive. That's what he's doing. And this, of course, is what Paul's been doing throughout this whole letter. That's, what behind, that's what's behind those famous words, to live as Christ and to die as gain, to count everything as lost in order that we may gain Christ, uh, to have the mind of Christ and think of others as better than yourself. See, we've been tra- tracing this all throughout his letter. Paul wants them to see that as they gave to him, they must give to God and to one another and not just receive. And folks, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, friends, is no domesticated house cat that only receives the benefit of food and shelter at no cost to itself. That's not the gospel. The gospel demands that fellowship with Christ come at the cost of giving up ourselves in order that we may know him and his everlasting love and to share that with others. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he said in John 12, 25, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So he, Jesus, is expressing the same idea that Paul is lifting up in this passage. That partnership, that gospel partnership comes by giving and receiving so that God would be glorified. Now let me sit just for a moment on this idea of God being glorified. Maybe you're asking the question, is it, is it sort of uh, arrogant for God to be about his own glory? Let's think about that for a moment. Look down there at verse 20. The end or the goal of their partnership wasn't just that God would supply all of their needs, the Philippians' needs, verse 19. The goal of partnering together wasn't merely just to get something out of it, the Philippians to get something out of it, just personally. We're going to partner together so I'll get something out of it. That wasn't the goal. The end, according to verse 20, the end of or their goal of their partnership was that God, their God and Father, and those of us that are in Christ, our God and our Father, might be glorified forever and ever. There's the goal. There's the end. There's the true north. That's the goal. That's the end of our partnership, our fellowship with God in the gospel. Well, how do we do that? How do we get to going about glorying in God? How does that happen? Well, it comes by our giving and receiving. Giving up our lives, our identities, our money, our comfort, our acceptance by others in some cases. Losing ourselves, losing even our base urges so that God may receive everlasting glory inside of those of whom we serve. And this is right. Here's the answer to that question. This is right that God be about his glory. Because for him to be about anything else would be about him, he would be then treasuring, valuing something below himself, which would make him an idolater. And God is not an idolater. Therefore, he does not break the first commandments to have no other gods before him. And so God is right to treasure, to exalt, to be about his own glory because he is the highest and best of all things. And so losing ourselves for the sake of gaining or receiving Christ and his glory 
is why God grants us that believe eternal life. It's the reason it's the reason why churches exist. And it's the way that all of our needs are going to be met. Glorying in him. And so let me ask you again. Have you ever understood the Christian faith to be a fellowship with God and with his people through the giving and receiving of ourselves for the purposes of seeing him glorified? Well, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, I wonder, is this the story that your life is operating inside of? Is this the way that you think about your life? Is this the story you see yourself operating in? If you do, then the church, friend, will hold a prominent place in your life and of making Christ known. So we've said this over and over again throughout this sermon series, but it's easy to lose sight of of the fact that all the U's, the Y-O-U's, inside of this letter, these four chapters, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that all those U's are second-person plurals. In other words, they're to a group of people. It's not This letter is not to one person. It's not just to an individual Christian, nor is it just to a scattered group of individual Christians in the region. It's to a collected body, a covenanted group of people that have decided to live their lives on mission together like a marriage. That's who this letter is to. It's always to this defined group of people in the church. A church, by the way, probably not much bigger than this one, probably smaller. So we think about this. When Peter preached the gospel in Pentecost, Acts chapter 3, Spirit comes down, he preaches. What happens after those people uh, believe? We find very quickly, what do they do? They gather people into churches. When Paul goes off on his first, second, third missionary journey, what does he do? He preaches the gospel, people respond, what does he do? He collects them together to be a church. And of course, they're doing this because this was Christ's vessel. This was always Christ's vessel to display his glory. You can read about that in Matthew 16 and Ephesians 3, just to name a couple places. The church is the people, the collected group of people to display that glory. And the way that the gospel joy comes is inside the church is by their giving and receiving with each other and also by partnering together with other churches or church planters to see the gospel grow. And that, again, is exactly what we see happening in this passage. So I want to end our time by applying three things to what we see happening here. I want to end our time by applying three things to us as a church in order that we may give and receive that God would receive the glory. Three things that Restoration Church in 2017 in Washington, D.C. can apply in order to give and receive for the purposes of glorying in God. So the first application is if we are going to partner together by giving and receiving for the goal of glorying in God, first thing is we need to share in the needs and troubles of gospel labors. We need to share in the needs and troubles of other gospel laborers. All right. You can see that there right there in verse 14 and throughout the rest of the passage. Paul says, I'm calling it Grace Church Philippi, just to kind of communicate that this is a church he's writing to. Paul says Grace Church Philippi, see that word shared. Look at verse 14. He sh- they shared in his troubles. Now you can't tell it right off, but that word shared is that word koinonia. It's partnership or fellowship. Paul is saying that they were kind to fellowship in his trouble. And why would they do this? Oh, it's because this is exactly what Jesus did, right? You ever thought about it that way? Jesus fellowshiped in our troubles through the Incarnation. This is what Christians do. We don't run from trouble. We move into it. God would be exalted. 
And so this is what the church does. We respond to the love of Christ by fellowshipping or sharing in the needs and troubles of other gospel laborers. And we do that by giving of three things. You heard Luke pray for them a little bit earlier. He did that totally separate from me. Uh, but it's sort of language we use a lot in the church. The one way that we can share the troubles uh, in partnering with other gospel laborers is by doing three things. By giving of our time, our talents, and our treasures. Our time and our talents and our treasures. Our time would be the way that we give of our time and receive of time. Time would be oftentimes the giving of our people. So, you know, I have FaceTime calls all the time with people all over the country, all over the world, where we're helping each other. Giving of our time. We think about our short-term trip that these guys in a couple weeks are going to go to. Short-term teams and also mid-term teams and long-term teams that go all over the world. We give our time and we send our people out there in order to refresh people in the work that they're doing. Because gospel labor is hard work. So we give of our time, which often comes by giving our people uh, to help people and refresh people. But also we give of our talents. Talents would be any abilities our people may have that may meet the needs or relieve the suffering of gospel workers around the world. So this could come in the form of utilizing the many languages we have in this church, the artists that we have in this church, uh, the, more often than not, the expertise that we have in this church. Think about, by the way, just think about the ways in which uh, the musicians serve us every week. Aren't you thankful for their work, our hard work of practicing and going to work every week so that we might be encouraged? They have an expertise of playing music, and so they help facilitate us singing the praises of God. That's what it looks like to give talent. So time and talents, and thirdly, treasures. And treasures would be finances or anything other uh, anything on top of things that might be wealthy or helpful, resources of some sort, giving of our treasures. But oftentimes for us it means finances, which could mean giving of money to whomever may be in need, that workers may be encouraged and strengthened to keep spreading the gospel. That's the hope, that whatever financial needs they have, they would spread the gospel, get those and spread the gospel. So when members of Restoration Church join this church, they agreed to a covenant which, re- which reads this, that they will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. That's in our covenant. So they agreed to that because that's what gospel-loving people do, right? They love Christ. They want to see the gospel spread. And wherever there's needs, they give their money that it would just keep going because they're more interested, not their own comfort, but they're more interested in the spread of the gospel, the relief of the poor, that the God of the gospel would then be exalted. And so they give their money and their time and their treasures to those things. So just to give you an idea, Restoration Church uh, exists of 135 covenanted members. uh, And we have agreed to give a little more than 12% of our, we'll call it budget. We call it the investment strategy, right? Good language, right? We only use good language. Investment strategy because we're investing in the work of the gospel, not just a budget. All right. So 12 percent, a little north of 12 percent of our budget goes to doing exactly what we see here in this passage, supporting the work of other gospel laborers in need all around the world. So that translates to 2016, this little church giving seventy seven thousand dollars away that the needs of others might be met and the gospel would go. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So the reality is, though, we cannot possibly share in the troubles of gospel labors everywhere, right? We couldn't do that. 
We can't do that. So what we do is we choose a few relationships to have in order to help facilitate mission. Just like Paul seems to be partnering together with one local church, we choose a few partners to do the same, to spread those. And so I'm going to share those with you. At Restoration Church, we have kind of two broad relationships, partners, and then kind of three specific partners. So the two broad uh, partners that we have is the Southern Baptist Convention and secondly, the Treasuring Christ Together Network. So when we give to the Southern Baptist Convention, no matter what you may see on the news, what it does is we give money into this big pot that allows pastors to be trained at half price at good seminaries and then other church planners around the world to not have financial troubles or at least to help alleviate some of their financial troubles. That's it. That's what the Southern Baptist Convention does. And it's a wonderful thing. So I uh, went to a good seminary and I got a great education uh, at Southeastern Seminary and I got it for half price. And I came out of seminary trained for ministry with no debt. That does not happen often, right? So that's a good thing to support. But also we think about people like Ryan and Elizabeth. We'll talk about them. They didn't have to raise any money. But also we give to the Treasuring Christ Together Network. All three, time, talents, and treasures. So this does the same thing. Treasuring Christ Together Network does the same thing, but except it focuses its effort on a little bit more defined group of churches and gospel laborers. So TCT, as we call it, is especially pressing in on the needs of the poor and racism within the United States by their planting churches in neighborhoods that will give them long-term care where there's difficulty so as to bring some healing and light into those hard places. Uh, and that's, we think that's best done by planting churches that treasure Christ together. So we participate in that. And also from TCT, we're also able to receive from them. We get additional pastoral counsel, pastoral accountability from those guys. Uh, you heard me mention that just last week. And same thing with uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. If, you, if a member of our church desired to go to seminary, they can go and get that half price. If you want to go on uh, to the nation and spread the gospel, you can go and not have to raise money oftentimes. These are good things. But let me mention a few specific partnerships we have as we, again, the idea here is giving and receiving, sharing in the troubles of other gospel labors. That's what's happening in this passage. Three specific partnerships we have, a little bit less broad, more specific. One organization is called Haiti Love. Haiti Love is led by our brother Noah Joyner. Many of you have met Noah. He's been here before. Noah is working with Haitian pastors. Uh, Haitian pastors often do not have much resources at all. And so what Noah does is he helps give theological and pastoral training to Haitian pastors. And the reality is, folks, most Haitian pastors have little or no training to do their job. And so therefore, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to support Noah as he walks them through some trainings so that these men will go on to lead healthy Haitian congregations where they're giving praise to God. That's one way we partner. But also, you hear us mention it's been prayed for today. We uh, I mentioned this trip that's going here in a couple weeks. They're in Central Asia. This is where our team's going in a couple weeks. We pray for them often. We send at least two teams a year to them in addition to supporting all kinds of other work that they may need. There's all kinds of random things that come over through emails and FaceTime calls. Uh, I think we, didn't we do something about their air conditioning, Chris, or something like that? There's all kinds of needs. Maybe that's not a need. Maybe that's a want. I don't know. Maybe it translates into a need. But nevertheless, we can talk about that later. It was a need. Chris is saying it's a need. He would know more than me. Talk to him about that. But we support other kinds of needs in Central Asia. Now, these folks, along with a couple others, um, they have two ladies, by the way, joining them soon to help from the uh, SBC are going to help facilitate mission. 
they're there. The reason why we uh, have a partnership within there is because they're ministering to a people that is known as an unreached people group. All that means is that there is no known gospel believing church that is praising the Lord Jesus and the gospel amongst those people. None that we know of anywhere. And we have how many churches just in Washington, D.C. alone? Well, amongst this particular people group, they have none, not one. There's a lot of need there. So we partner with them. We know them. We love them. They know and love us. Uh, And so we partner with them and give them things, whatever they need to help the mission keep going. And finally, a third specific thing we partner with is the Maleros to plant a Latino church in the middle of Columbia Heights, a gospel believing Hispanic church that speaks Spanish, ministering in Spanish amongst those people there in Columbia Heights. And we do that because we can't identify there's plenty of quote-unquote, Christian churches around, but we can identify another gospel-believing, Bible-believing, biblically faithful, mission-minded Hispanic church in the middle of D.C. We can't identify. We've looked around. We can't find one. And so we're going to try to meet that need by partnering with the Moleros to spread the gospel. And so those are just some of the ways that we are endeavoring to do what Paul seems to be indicating here, sharing in the troubles of other gospel labors. I didn't even mention our partnership. You heard Catherine mention this with, with uh, Campus Outreach and Hector with FCA and Andrew in England and Cherub. Uh, I mean, I could keep going here. The Central Union Mission with the homeless of D.C. and D.C. 127 and the foster children. There's some others, but those are the kind of a few that we have that we're partnering together. But the point is, don't miss this. The point is, if we're going to be a church that preaches the gospel, We must share in the needs and the troubles of other gospel labors by giving and receiving in order that God would be glorified. And so if you are not giving of your time and your talent and your treasures to these needs, I challenge you to do that. I challenge you to do that. God has given you, if you are a Christian, if you understand yourself to be changed by the grace of Christ, God has given you all three of those things in some capacity. Time, treasures, and talents. And he gave those to you that you would steward them in the church for his glory. And so if you're not doing those things, then you're not reflecting the purposes for which God gave those things to you. And let me say this, too, by the way. I want to thank you, Restoration Church. And I think Joey would say the same and Catherine would say the same. Because of your gifts to us, me and Joey and Catherine are able to be full-time devoted gospel laborers in Northwest D.C. So thank you for the opportunity to do that uh, here in this community. But, friends, if you have any questions about any of those things I mentioned, how you can be a part of those, serve those, you come talk to me, talk to anybody else you've seen up here. But, but if we're going to give glory to God and give and receive, we not only need to share the needs and the troubles of gospel workers, we also need to do so in a particular way. Take a look at verse 17. We need to not seek the gift in that work, in that sharing, in that partnership. Not seek the gift, but the fruit that comes to the credit of those we serve. That's the second thing we have to do. Not seek the gift, but the fruit that comes to the credit of those we serve. Now remember, Paul just talked about the fact that he is content uh, in Christ. He's learned to be content whether he has a little or a lot. He doesn't need the gift from the church at Philippi because he, all he needs is the grace and mercy of Christ. So his attitude there, Paul's attitude there, reflects what our attitude should be like. We should be more interested in the fruit that comes to the giver 
than we are in receiving the gift from others. So when I was reading this, uh, this passage this week, I was struck because when we worked to plant this church about nine years ago, we started raising money. And I don't think I did this one time, not once. I was thankful for the money that people gave to help start this church, but I don't think I had a single thought ever about being more interested in the one dollar that they gave us that I'd be more interested that, that because they gave that dollar that God would do something awesome in their life. I don't think that thought entered my head one time. So in that way, I was sort of being selfish, right? I mean, I was interested in gospel work, but I wasn't thinking about the money that came to me. I was thankful for it, was putting it into use for the spread of the gospel, but I don't think I ever took the time to think more about the giver than I did. I just was thinking about the gift itself. But that seems to be the thing that Paul is interested in. Paul was more interested in how the Lord would use the gift from the Philippians to grow their love for God than he was in how that gift would supply his own needs. And so for us, let's apply this for us. When we send this team to Central Asia in a couple weeks, or when we write a check, let's say, to DC 127, we do not do those things thinking about what we are going to get out of it. That's what Paul would have us to see. We want to be a blessing so that others may be blessed of God. So when this Hispanic church gets off, the, gets off the ground, we don't want to point to it and say, look what we did as a church. And kind of boast in our own gift, as it were. So we are supporting this work so that any material and spiritual needs might be met amongst those Hispanics that the Maleros meet so that God would be glorified. And that's it for us. That's why we're in it. We're not seeking to get something out of it. We might receive things out of it, but we're mainly interested in the fruit that will come to the credit of those we serve. We only want to see Hispanic peoples know and enjoy Christ and love each other in that. That's the thing that we're most interested in. Not seeking anything that we might get out of it. And that's the reward. The reward is that church flourishing and loving each other and seeing that and giving praise to God for it. See, as Paul says here, as we partner in the work of the gospel, we do not seek the gift, but the fruit that increases to the credit of those we partner with. So we are more interested in the credit being granted to those we serve than we are ourselves. And credit there, by the way, means blessing of God, as it were. Blessing of God. So we're more interested in seeing those we partner with be blessed, be credited, he's using accounting language, credited with the grace of God than we are in seeing our own glory or our own satisfaction in those gifts. But maybe a more personal application here would be to understand that if you understand yourself, to have fellowship with God, uh, that means, first off, as we've said, you have fellowship with His church. And fellowship or partnership, as we've been seeing, is not merely receiving from the church, but giving, verse 15, giving to the church in all of those times, talents, treasures, in hopes of giving to the church, in hopes of seeing that church or that community flourish that God would be glorified. So, friends, in a consumeristic culture, it has so many options when it comes to church. I mean, you, when you first came to this church, you knew that there's probably five, ten, even in a Washington, D.C., there's plenty of options to go to another church. So there's this temptation in us to be more interested in what we receive, what we get, how we like things, than we are in the credit to come to those of whom we have partnered with. 
seeking the gift more than seeking the credit or the blessing of giving to others in the church. So in other words, people bounce around seeking the gift, seeking to be served in the way that they would like, not seeking the fruit that might come as a result of their service to the church or that community to the glory of God. That's not a healthy way to think about the Christian life, friends. The healthiest Christians I know are the ones that see the church as a marriage, like a marriage. They see it as a commitment to partner together in the work of giving and receiving in order that God would be glorified and that others would flourish in that glory. They know that, like themselves, no church is a finished product, but they don't focus on those things that they don't like, nor, uh, nor do they focus on merely receiving a gift from the church, although they should receive. They're more interested, the healthier Christians, like Paul that we're reading in this passage, they're more interested in the glory God will receive and the blessing those they serve will receive than they are in the gift that they themselves might receive. And that is the mind of Christ. And so, friend, in other words, if you're waiting to commit to a church because you want to be sure that they can meet all of your needs, you're missing the mark that Paul is laying down for us in this passage. doesn't mean those concerns or those questions are unwarranted. Just there needs to be a posture there that Paul has illustrated for us. And that is to say, be more intoxicated in God, receiving glory, and others flourishing in that glory, more than you are interested in having your individual preferences met. That's the example Paul wants us to operate inside. That's the example he's given to the Philippians here in this passage. And so I want us to be a church, and I thank God that we are, be a church that doesn't seek the gift more than we seek the fruit, the flourishing that comes from those we serve. And thirdly and finally, we should trust God that he will supply all of our needs. You can see that there in verse 19. Trust that God will supply all of our needs. So notice, Paul does not say he will supply all of your wants. Right? doesn't say all your wants. He says God will supply all of your needs. Right? There are a ton of things about this church that I love and don't want to change. And there's some that I would like to see changed. But every single one of those things are nothing to do, have nothing to do with my needs. Here at Restoration Church, God has promised to give us all of our needs. And He has. He's given us that. He did promise. God did promise. There, verse 19. He promised us to supply this church with every need we have. Which could be His Spirit, His Word, the fellowship of His people around the Gospel. He has promised us that. And isn't that encouraging, guys? That's so encouraging to think about that God promises, I'm going to take care of you. The most important things, your needs, are going to be met. I promise to give that to you. And how can we be sure that God's going to make good on that promise? In verse 19, how can we be sure that he's going to make good on that promise? Well, he says there, because of the riches of the storehouse that he has to pull from. He is able to give according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, guys, did you notice he doesn't say out of, out of his glory in Christ Jesus? It says, according to his riches in glory. What's the difference, you ask? Well, if God was going to supply every need out of his riches in glory in Christ, that would be wonderful. That would be a good thing. It would communicate there's an infinite reserve there. See, but Paul is going beyond that. It includes that, but it goes beyond that. He is saying that 
He's saying that that supply for our needs in verse 19 in accordance is in accordance to or is matched by the glory that is in the heavens and in Christ Jesus. So in other words, he's not just wanting to see the amount of riches. He's wanting us to see the strength of the source of those riches. That's what's being taught here. So this is pulling off of, again, Paul's words, finding contentment in Christ. He has strength to endure all things, whether he has a little or a lot that's coming out of that. And so Paul here, as we, uh, is helping us see that as we partner together in the, in the work of giving and receiving for the goal of glorying in God through our sharing the needs and the troubles of other gospel laborers, uh, through our seeking not what we receive, but seeking the fruit of those of whom we serve, he's telling us that we can do all of that knowing that God will never leave us without whatever we need to continue in that work. It's so encouraging. There's a promise from God right there. And the reason why this is, the reason why we can do all of this, knowing that God will never leave us without the supply of whatever we need to do all of this work, because this is so important. Do not miss this. If you're fading off on me, come back in right now. All right, this is important. The reason why he can make this promise is because in Christ Jesus, we have all we need. So good. So here's how that works. Here's how that works. Back to verse 14. Christ shared all of our troubles by becoming sin for us. Fully God, fully man. God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we, the church, might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. And so the beauty of Christ is, is he has, you can go back and read this, chapter 2, verse uh, 6 down to 11. Go read that. Christ was in the form of God. That is, he was God. And he humbled himself to the point of becoming a man and became obedient to the point of death on the cross. So fully God, fully man, makes an offering for sinners that they might be clean. Those that believe they might be made clean, forgiven. And his resurrection shows that he has triumphed over sin and death. And so those that believe, they too can have new life. And the record of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the wealth of Christ gets transferred to those that believe. And so therefore, that's where this promise comes from. We have everything that we need in Christ. And so now, since we have a fellowship with Christ, we have fellowship with all that Christ is. So we have been raised with Christ. We now reign with Christ. We will one day share in the glory of Christ. Therefore, in Christ, God will supply every single one of our needs as a people. Not every single one of our wants, but every single one of our needs. And he will do it, how? In Christ Jesus. That is, in and through our union with him. And so with that, friends, we have absolutely, positively nothing to worry about. Nothing to despair of and everything to hope in him for. Everything to hope in him for. We can trust him to grow this church spiritually and physically. We can trust Him to advance the gospel into Northwest D.C. and see people come to faith in Christ and be changed by that love. We can trust Him for that. He's going to give us everything we need to do that work. We can trust Him to plant this Hispanic church. We can trust Him to care for foster children in uh, the District of Columbia, to care for the homeless of, through the Central Union Mission. We can trust Him to supply all of our needs to Bring up the leaders as people move away and other leaders have to come up. We can trust him that whatever needs we have for leadership, he's going to be able to facilitate that. He'll bring that in. We can trust him for that. 
We can trust him that he's going to give us all that we need to care for the children of our church. Everything that we need is there. You say, Nathan, wouldn't it be great if we had a big slide the kids can go down? Well, that's a want, not a need, right? But we have the gospel. We have people willing to love our children in the gospel. That's what we need. And we have all of it. It's all right there. So in Christ, we lack nothing. And in him, we have everything, everything. Restoration Church, I would encourage us all to recommit ourselves to God and to one another by partnering together in giving and receiving for the spread of the glory of God through the gospel. We have nothing to worry about, everything to be hopeful about. God has promised to us that he will always be able to supply all of our needs. And I'm pretty sure he's good at keeping his promises. He's always true to that. So let's trust Christ by giving and receiving of ourselves that God would be glorified here in Washington, D.C. and beyond. We have everything to be thankful and hopeful about. Give and receive that God would be glorified. Let's pray and ask him for help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of these words. What seem to be just sort of final thoughts from one man to a group of people 2,000 years ago. We find that when we study them, they are the recipe for a life with you and your people. God, may we share in the troubles of our brothers and sisters who are advancing the gospel. May we seek not the gift, but the fruit that would increase to those we serve. And God, may we trust you that you will supply everything that we need to make these things happen. Oh God, thank you that you are in yourself a God that gives and receives. Thank you for the partnership that we have in Christ. May we trust him and be confident in all things because of that partnership. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.